We're starting this episode off a little different this week. We have our first sponsor. If you guys have been watching our Instagram account, you've probably seen it. There's a camera shop in Texas that I've worked with for quite a while now. It's called Precision Camera. And I've worked with the sales manager, Mike Luxembourg, for, I don't know, 15 years. And he started out here in Colorado at a, at a little camera shop. And they got an offer and went down there. And I just stayed with him. With today's internet and shipping and all that jazz, it's just super easy to stay with someone that knows what they're talking about and provides really good customer service. And that's what they do. Over the last couple of months, I've been talking to Mike. He's been listening to the podcast. He's like, hey, we want to sponsor your show. We think you guys talk to our audience. And, and I agree. One of the coolest things that Precision Camera offers, I run into all the time, is I'll have people ask me, hey, I need to get a camera for my son. I need to get a camera for my daughter. I want to buy a camera for my mom. Here's my budget. And this is my level of experience. And generally, I don't know, because most of the time it's a beginner photographer. And I really am not up on what's going on in the beginner camera lines. There's some really good stuff out there, but I just don't follow it. So I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. What Precision Camera offers is what's called a virtual showroom. What you can do is log into their website at precision-camera.com. So it's precision-camera.com. And right on the first page there, you'll see a link to the virtual showroom. You can go in there and schedule an appointment. And what you'll do is a video conference with a salesperson on the floor. And these people deal with all levels, all camera brands, all the time. And you're going to be able to tell them your level of experience or the person that you're buying for. And you'll be able to tell them your budget. And based off of that, you'll be able to narrow in on what is the best camera for what you have going on. Super cool. I'm going to send people to that from now on out because, like I say, I just don't have enough information on all the cameras that are out there. And you guys know there's just so many. One last thing. If you don't have time for a video chat, there is also a text chat option. If you have a quick question about a product, you can type in your question and somebody will get back to you very quickly. If you decide to do that and you decide to buy a camera, we got a good deal for you. With their sponsorship of the show... They've also given us a coupon code. If you go in, set up your account, create your purchase, get to the checkout screen, you'll get a little field on the checkout sheet that asks for a coupon code. And what you want to put in is wild and exposed. And what that gets you is $50 off of a $500 or more dollar purchase. So type in wild and exposed and capitalize the W, the A, and the E. Wild and exposed. And that'll get you 50 off of 500 we're super excited to have Precision Camera as a sponsor. Now I'm with the show. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed. This is a We've got a repeat guest on tonight. Uh, first, myself, Ron Hayes, coming to you from Wyoming. Mark Raycroft coming to you from the tundra with his, is it a toque? Yes, well, okay. it's a beanie on the Wild and Exposed store. Beanie, there you go. When you're north to the border, it's a toque. Whatever you want to call it, you just need to buy one. And then uh, Tim Irvin is coming to us from Ottawa, Canada. Stop. <laughs> he was saying that before the podcast. Coming to us from Ottawa. We appreciate your time again, Tim, coming back 
It's good to have you back. This has been kind of a crazy year for you, has it not? Yeah, it has. It's good to be back, first off. Great to be back here with you guys. And I'm actually north of Ottawa. I'm in the province of Quebec, the Belle Provence. And uh, yeah, it's been a, a crazy year. I mean, obviously, it's been a crazy year for everybody. And I think, um, you know, for for me as a tour operator, man, it's it's hit really hard. I mean, there's been numerous things with family. I've got young kids who are three and five years old. You know, they were out of school for, since, you know, from March till September and school's still limited now. But, you know, we had all of our tours were sold out for 2020, you know, months and months in advance. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had to cancel all of them. And, uh, you know, so you, you, it's a big loss of revenue. I mean, that's how I support my family. Um, but it's also, I think the, the other thing is it's it's a it's a big chunk of my way of life too, right? I've talked to a bunch of other tour operators this year, and it's like you know everybody's stuck at home. Nobody can get away and do that thing that really lights them up. And I hear you guys talking about that in the podcast too. Everybody's feeling a little hemmed in, and and so that's um and it definitely you know I don't know about you guys, but I took it took an emotional toll. Like I just wasn't feeling very good. I was like you know what am I actually looking forward to here in the next number of months? And there there wasn't much. It was just kind of trying to get through it. And, uh, you know, some of those problems aren't going away anytime soon. Like maybe there's some light in the horizon here with the news of vaccines coming out, but you know, our 2021 season isn't, isn't looking that certain either. You know, I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like. And so, yeah, that's, it's been tough. It's been tough. I know I've been in communication with you about possibly, uh, going out to photograph spirit bears and just, uh, you know, you anti-american sentiment up there not letting us into the country <laughs> no come on we're all Great friends, friends. <laughs> no the the <laughs> truth of the matter is 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 the people that are booking the tours obviously or for obvious reasons are not booking or not giving any preference to american customers because there's a good chance that the the border will still be closed and there's there's no news right now as to when that might reopen. And so I fully understand that, but it doesn't make it feel any better when I see those incredible images that you post. Who knows? I mean, nobody would have predicted this long and, and it's not just that border, you know, some of us love getting to places like Newfoundland and I can't go from Ontario to Newfoundland. Yeah. Yeah. Even inner province. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough because, you know, well, for all those reasons, it's, it's difficult. And just the uncertainty of it, I think just weighs heavily on people. Although I, I, I think a lot of us are just becoming a bit more comfortable with that uncertainty. We've kind of been sitting in it for so long now. It's a bit um, less, uh, doesn't induce as much anxiety as it did back in, in the spring. Kind of just getting used to it and trying to adapt. You know, humans are wonderfully adaptive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're just rolling on. And, you know, I've still spent a huge amount of time managing the business and, and doing correspondence with guests and, and moving reservations around and stuff and trying to accommodate people. And I have no idea if there's if it's ever going to, you know, it's ever going to pay off in any way. So that, that's a bit tough because there's other things I could be doing with my time. But oh, for sure. You don't want to just leave it alone and disappoint people, and you know, you got to try to do your best, even if it's not going to amount to anything. So book it, keep your fingers crossed, and hopefully yeah. you'll be able to guide and and educate and entertain people in the Great Bear Rainforest. Yeah, I hope so. You know, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, when you guys get in the field, it's like it, it lights you up, right? It lights you up. Oh, You're excited to be out there doing the thing. The best. And, oh, that's the thing. And it, it was a real hole in my year to not have that. 
you know, that was the, you know, my guiding season, the time of year when I get to put on that persona and go out there and be, be the guide. And, and that's a part of me I really like. I really enjoy stepping into that role. So it's been tough not having that. But hey, there's a lot of people having a lot worse. And, you know, I'm thankful for what we've got. You know, my family's healthy. My wife has a job. So we're able to pay our bills. And, you know, that's that's the big picture. And that's that's good. So hopefully this year has at least done that, given us all the opportunity to remember that, you know, there are folks that have it a lot worse than what we do. Oh, yeah. In spite of how bad we think it might be. Yeah. Missing out on a trip is nothing compared to what some folks have gone through this year. Absolutely. There's no question. We, we have to always remember that. You know, not get too concerned with our own little worlds, right? So, Tim, last time you were on, you you we kind of briefly touched on this adventure that you had. And, and Mark has uh, worked out with you. We tried to do this earlier in the summer, but with your, your boys' home, that required a lot of your attention and we appreciate you uh, making some time for us tonight. I'm just going to let Mark run with it because he's kind of, he's kind of spearheaded the effort to get you back on and, and talk about this adventure. But again, thank you. And I can't wait to have this conversation because that conversation that we had last time, it felt like a cliffhanger. There's so many questions <laughs> that I wanted to ask you about this trip. Well, Tim, I mean, one of my all-time favorite guests, and it's it's been great getting to know you for all kinds of reasons. And when you brought this subject up, it just kind of stopped me in my tracks that you had embarked on this adventure. And again, as Ron alluded to, it just created so many questions. So without you actually having done a book, which I would love to have in my hands someday about <laughs> this, encouragement, encouragement, right. just to hear the story, to go through the, the paces of what you decided to do for this phenomenal adventure is super exciting for me just to think about. There, it's, it's, I've done many wilderness trips, but never something as grand, as solitary, as remote for such a long period of time. And so I'm, I'm quite drawn to that because my time in wilderness, I get the flavor of that on each journey. But it's never been to the level that this trip resonates for me, hearing from mm. you. So seven-week solo canoe trip in the far north of Canada. What sparked an interest in your mind just mm. in the very initiation of that thought that this sounds like a great idea and what created that for you the desire you know it's, it's a good question and it was it wasn't like a an there wasn't a particular galvanizing moment it was i think a bit of a process because you know i've done a, a lot of canoe trips before that you know ranging from you know weekend jaunts to eight week adventures you know uh in the arctic and in the southern places you know Algonquin park and places like that where you've spent a lot of time mark so I, i'd done a lot of different kinds of canoe trips and i'd done some solo canoe trips you know ranging from four days up to two weeks and and i so and then i think it just kind of went from there i mean I, I had read books about um people had sailed around the world by themselves or people had done, you know, big solo hiking adventures or canoeing adventures. And there was something about it, just kind of like you said earlier, Mark, that I was just drawn to that. And I, I don't know why there was something about like seeing these people, 
you know, exploring solitude, exp exploring, you know, the big wild, if you will, and the, the resourcefulness that it takes to do something on your own, um, something about the self-reliance of it really appealed to me. And also the, the, the freedom, you know, like I feel like in our lives, we're always, it's this dance, right? This push and pull of trying to fit our lives into our own schedule plus those of others. And we're always kind of getting pushed and pulled in different directions. And when you're on a solo trip, um, what I realized early on in my solo tripping adventures, you know, even going out for four days, I was like, wow, this is not like that. I, I'm completely on my own schedule here. I don't have to ask anybody, if, you know, do you want to stop for lunch here? Do you want to make camp? What do you want to do? It's just everything. You just follow your nose and it's all on a whim. And so there's something about that I was just really drawn to. And as I did a number of more trips, I got more and more curious about what longer and longer periods of immersion would be like. And I think I just got really captivated by, hey, what would it be like to spend, you know, almost two months out there by myself? What would what would it be like? And, and, and what would I be like? Like, would I actually enjoy the experience? Would I thrive in that? Or would I find it really challenging? You know, I wasn't really sure. So in that sense, although my previous trips um, had been wonderful, like uh, amazing experiences, I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be like to be alone for seven weeks out there. But I was really curious to find out. How old were you? <laughs> oh, geez, I guess I was How in young. My... How young were you? When I went? Yeah, right. I mean, this trip was... Um, more than 10 years ago. So I was probably 33 or something. Okay. I probably did my first solo canoe trips when I was in my early twenties. And then when I was about 24, I did a two week solo trip along the North shore of Lake Superior, which was just spectacular. Um, but then, not yeah, November, I hope what's that? No, not November. Not the gales in November. Not. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, reenactments. Good. But um, yeah, so I think I was in my mid thirties then, and I had a lot of you know other trips under my belt, and I, and I felt ready. Like it wasn't just something uh, that I wanted to be. I just didn't like jump in and go on my first canoe trip by myself in the Arctic for seven weeks. Like I, I really built up to that. The time of year that you decided to go was July and August. July and August, and why? Where was it that you started the trip, and why did you select that launching point? So I started in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories of Canada. And, and I started there because, you know, up, up in the far north there, there's not that many places where you can access the central Arctic, right? I mean, you need a, in my case, I mean, I wanted to fly and um, I wanted to get dropped off by a float plane in sort of the central region. And there's just not that many access points. So Yellowknife was the obvious one. And so, and July was the obvious start point, like as early in July as I could, because previous to that, you know, there's still a lot of ice in the lakes and rivers. So as I flew out of Yellowknife, as we started flying north, I think my charter flight was maybe maybe an hour and a half or two hours. I guess a good it's a good pull. And a lot of the lakes we were looking down at were frozen to the point that we weren't sure we we're going to be able to find open water to land it. Uh, but we landed um, in a river. And so we found an open stretch where there was just enough current where the ice had moved out and we were able to land. So, so that's why July is that, you know, July and August, because the rest of the time up there, uh, it's frozen and or threatening to freeze. So that's why that time window. Taking a step back, even from that, Tim, how much time did you spend planning this trip? <laughs> See, this is a good question. And, and this is kind of the fun thing, right? Because you, you envision the trip, you, you get this idea stuck in your head and then you figure, okay, how am I going to do this? You know, at the time I had a, a job, right. And it was like, I had to negotiate a pretty solid chunk of time away from work and I have to do 
all the planning, all the organization in the hours in between my otherwise busy life and my full-time job. And so I, I was planning it for, for months, you know, working on logistics, getting, you know, updating and fixing and, and buying some new equipment. And a huge amount of it was food preparation, right? Like I would, I had two dehydrators in my house at the time, a big giant box of a homemade one that one of my roommates made. And then I sort of commercially bought one. And I would typically throw like a whole bunch of like veggies or, you know, sometimes I'd be dehydrating some sort of sauce or I don't know, even soup. Sometimes I put it on in the morning, I'd go to work, I'd come home, I'd take that all off, package it, label it, put it away, and then put on a whole bunch more stuff before going to bed at night. And I did that for weeks. So it, it took um, a long time. And, and, and so the, the nice thing about it is when you have this extended project, I mean, it gives you this real focus, right? It becomes part of the trip is that you have this sort of exciting thing you're working towards uh, at that point in time, this project. Um, and, and so that was, that was exciting too. And, and then by the time you get dropped off or by the time I got dropped off by that float plane and the, you know, he left me there beside this partially frozen river, but next to a pile of gear that I painstakingly put together over weeks and weeks and weeks, man, that was just an amazing moment. It's like, Oh my God, I'm finally here. I'm here. I get to actually do this thing that I've been working towards for so long. I mean, it's, it's a lot different than just going away for uh, a long weekend or something. So, yeah. So there was that excitement, but what else went through your mind as that float plane flew away? Well, yeah, it's a good question. I, I was mostly excited. I think it had been so much work just to get there. And I had looked forward to that moment for so long. And because I had already learned that I was comfortable in the wilderness by myself on these other uh, trips, it, it, I wondered if it would be kind of a nerve wracking moment, but it wasn't. I was, I was actually just totally happy and, and in some ways relieved that, that all the work was now behind me and now it was the fun part. You know, I remember on my first solo trip, just four days, I remember paddling away and, and it was a bit of a weird feeling. Maybe like, oh my God, I'm all alone by myself out here. But strangely, I didn't experience any of that on that big solo trip. I think I was just ready for it. So the, the food, well, so many questions. Did you have a sat phone? I mean, nowadays we do a trip like that shorter for me so mm -hmm. far, but we have an inreach. So mm -hmm. we, we've got that invisible tether in the case of a dire emergency that there's that safety blanket. I assume, did you, did you have a sat phone or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And okay. so, this is this is the thing is like there's some people there's purists out there who don't want to carry any kind of communication equipment that's the one extreme end of the spectrum and the other side of the spectrum is that those people who check in on their devices every day or multiple times a day and and i'm kind of in the middle i carry devices uh and when i'm honest about it it's like well that's mostly for the sort of security of my family Right. Because if something happened to me out there, it's kind of selfish. If I if something happened to me and I'm totally could be saved if I had a communication device, but I didn't bring one because I have some, you know, ideas about that's not pure enough. Then all of a sudden, you know, if worst case scenario, I die out there. Well, that's pretty unfair to my family. So I had a satellite phone. Uh, I'd learned on previous trips that, you know, these things can fail. We had one fail on a previous trip. So my backup device was a personal locating beacon and Unlike an in-reach device that you can text and send specific messages, all it does is send an SOS and you're not really supposed to use it unless you're in a life-threatening situation. So I carried that in my life jacket all the time because it's a small unit. And my satellite phone was sort of the backup thing that I had in my gear somewhere. But um, 
you know, those, <laughs> as I like to say to people, it's like, those things are really good to have, but um, it doesn't reduce the risk to nothing. I mean, if you capsize in a rapid and drown, they don't help you, right? Mm. It's over. Yeah. So many variables on these adventures. Yeah. So when you launched, you had everything with you. There was no drop later. Right. Or you had taken all your food prep for the entire seven weeks. Yeah. And, and that, that's an important, that's an important point because one, it's such a remote area and to get resupplied would, it would just be prohibitively expensive. You couldn't do it. At least I, I couldn't do it. Um, but the second part is that just having all of your stuff and being perfectly self-reliant that way, um, a, it means you're not reliant on that resupply meeting at a certain place at a certain time and then being sort of stuck there. You know, if you get a bad weather window, maybe you're running out of food. I've read certain accounts of people sitting out there watching their food disappear and the resupply can't get there for another few days. You're free of that. But then you're also just free of uh, interference, if you will. You don't get that interruption in the flow of your trip because, you know, there's a certain messiness at the start of the trip when you're kind of figuring out your systems and where everything is in your pack and how you do everything. And then, you know, at the... Um, as you keep going, everything just becomes, starts to work like clockwork. Everything comes really smooth and you just sort of sink into the place. You become more perceptive to the place you're traveling in, the environment around you, the wildlife, all that stuff. And it's really nice to not interrupt that. So that's sort of the romantic reason why I didn't do it. But the practical reason is I couldn't afford it. <laughs> that's important. That's yeah. Important to understand. And, and even in the planning process, mm -hmm. um, the weeks I if I heard you right, freeze drying soup. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, you know, the, the, the soup that you buy freeze dry is terrible, but you know, you can make a great split pea soup or like a curried squash soup and it, you know, it, it dehydrates just fine. And it, and it comes back, you feel like your mama just made it for you. And it's on a cold blustery day in the tundra, man, that's just, that's good medicine. The only time I've ever dehydrated split pea soup is when my mom told me I had to keep it in the bowl till I ate it all. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> As the trip began and you, you kind of start developing your system, you're, you were talking about, you know, the wildlife, the interaction that you're going to have. You had planned your route. Did you have markers that I'd have to make it so far each day or was that just kind of take it as it went for the first, first few days or did you, you have all that planned on mapped out as well? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, I had certain markers in, in a rough sense, but I specifically planned this trip to have a whole lot of extra time so I wouldn't have to be rushed. So I'd been on trips before. Uh, we talked about on the last um, time I was on the show where we did this eight-week, 56-day trip that was 1,000 kilometers. And because the distance was so great, like you know, we really had to push to make sure we were on – a certain sort of schedule, a certain amount of mileage today or per day, because you'd also never know when like in the tundra, man, there's no trees, right? So when the wind starts to blow, you get those storms and they'll pin you to the tundra. And sometimes you can't go anywhere for days. I mean, we got stuck on an island in the Arctic Ocean and we were stuck there for, I think four or five days, five days, we couldn't go anywhere. And so we're just like finishing one book, trading books among us and like reading books. We had nowhere to go. And um, so I didn't want, and on, and on that trip, there were times when we would see caribou or muskox on a horizon or a, on, on a hillside, and I was just desperate to get out there with my camera and go take pictures or even just sit and watch with my binoculars. And we're like, guys, you know, we're we're behind. We we gotta we gotta keep trucking here. 
And so on the solo trip, I was absolutely um, never ever wanted to paddle past anything of interest. So that trip was only 500 kilometers and only maybe a week and a half shorter in time, which meant that, sure, I expected it would take me about two weeks to do this section. But if I was you know, a day or two in either direction, it didn't matter, which meant that, you know, if I find a wolf den, I can sit on it for a while and see what happens, you know. So, so it was pretty loosey goosey that way. And it was intentional. It was very intentional. As a canoeist, what did you choose to take on this trip? Well, that was kind of funny. So it probably wasn't, it wasn't the best vessel, but it was a really good deal. So, um, you know, typically, if you're trying to, you know, rent a boat up there for that amount of time, you might as well, you almost might as well buy one if it's just by yourself, right? And typically the boats that are for rent up there are, you know, 17 foot Royal X boats, which are uh, pretty big for a solo paddler. You know, you don't really need, I don't really need that much space. So I managed to find a guy, Hellman Canoes in Nelson, BC. He makes some great boats. And uh, so he, I think he was sending a shipment of boats up there and he had a demo boat that he sent me and it was a, a 15 foot boat. And it was a peculiar thing in that it, he had this fiberglass layup that he claims you could wrap around a rock the same way that you could wrap a Roylex boat and still pop it off and not have it snap in half, you know, and reshape it. And uh, so that was a kind of a... It's a comforting um, visual. It's Yeah, it's a comforting... <laughs> I still took fiberglass repair kit with me, but he was pretty convinced in this layup. And so I opted for that in part because it was super cheap and in part because it would keep me honest. You know, if you're in a Roylex boat, you know, they're pretty indestructible. And sometimes that can make you, uh, it can give you a false sense of your whitewater paddling abilities. And so by having that boat that was maybe a little more fragile, it meant that I wasn't going to be tempted to paddle those things that I probably shouldn't be paddling by myself in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, I still paddle lots of whitewater and I probably still paddle some stuff I shouldn't have paddled. But by and large, the boat, I think, helped keep me honest a little bit. Yeah. It's tarped, right? <clears throat> if that if there's that kind of water. Yeah, yeah. We've always tarped our boats, um, but again, on this one, I did not, uh, and only because I would have had to make a custom. I would have had a custom. I would have had to be a custom job, and right. again, it would have been really pricey. And again, as much as it's nice to have a tarp boat, <clears throat> I thought the same thing. It would keep me honest to not have one. <clears throat> I mean, they're helpful for, it's not only water, keeping water out, but it also helps down your wind resistance when it's really windy. But I, I didn't take it on this one. And part of the reason is that I was giving myself lots of time. I was never going to put myself in a position where I had to rush if the weather or water was uh, a bit dicey. Did you know, I mean, with the technology back then, as far as you had a map for the the route of the river, and if, if you don't mind, what what was the name or were there multiple names as the river took changed course? Yeah. Yeah, sure. No, I don't mind. I think it's important to share, share these places with people who uh, may otherwise love them and not want to see them get developed. So I was on the Bailey River. So the Bailey River is sort of the western boundary of the Thelon Wildlife Sanctuary. And it's an extraordinary canoeing river, just extraordinary tundra river. And it flows into the back river. Um, so I went down the Bailey River and then I had this notion that I'd met this amazing guy on our first trip up there we did a it's a trip we haven't mentioned yet a, another seven week trip with a group of friends up there um and at the end of the trip we met this gentleman who was probably at the time maybe 60 years old and he had just finished a month-long solo trip 
And he said that on this river, he's like, I just came down the Western River and I saw more wolves than I've seen on all my other tundra trips combined. And this guy was doing a tundra trip like every year, or every other year for the last 20 years. And that just, I never forgot that. I was like, wow, that river's crawling with wolves. I was like, I have to paddle that river. But it's not a very long river. So I needed to connect it with some other things. So I thought, well, if I go down the Bailey River for a couple of weeks and go up the back river and then portage overland over this height of land, then I can paddle the Western River down to the coast and end my trip there. So it was Bailey back Western with a bit of hiking in between to get there. So you did portage as well. Yeah. Yeah. There was the first two weeks I didn't have any portages. Then I basically traveled upstream and had to portage around the big rapids. And then for the big height of land, I figured... It would take me a couple days to portage that and just backing up a little bit, like where Mark and I come from, portages are usually measured in meters or yards, right? It's usually like, hey, 100 meters, maybe 800 meters, but the long ones, maybe a couple kilometers or a mile. I figured I- Heavy I gonna, duty. Pretty heavy duty. <laughs> there's nothing, kilometer portage is nothing to sniff at, right? Wow. But in this yeah. case, I realized my units of measurement were going to be different. You know, the units were going to be days. And so that was intimidating, but I noticed on the map, there was this creek and I thought, well, I can float my boat up the creek and that will knock off a lot of the carrying, um, I thought. But then when I got there, uh, the, the creek bed was there and it was full of these wonderfully angular boulders. And if you sat on top of them, you could actually, you couldn't see any, but you could hear the water trickling underneath it. In other words, there was, there was no water. <laughs> so <clears throat> this idea of had of floating my boat upstream to get over the headlands didn't exist. So that portage was actually four days. And uh, that was, uh, yeah, that's a story in and of itself. Did you do it in one go, the portage, or would you have to do different legs? Because obviously with that much gear and food, yeah. you can't carry everything on your back, canoe on your head and happily just walk. There's too much, right? There's too much. And it's annoying because as photographers, we always have extra stuff, right? So I'm sure there's people in the canoeing community who aren't really wildlife photographers who would shake their head at me. It's like, how did it take you so long to go that far? But it's like, well, I had some camera gear that took a whole extra load, right? So, so what I would do is <clears throat> I would carry the canoe a certain distance until it started to hurt more than I wanted it to. I'd put it down, then I'd go back and get the second load, and then I'd go back and get the third one. And I think, yeah, at least three loads. And so then, you know, in the middle of that, I would stop and make camp and there was times when i'd make camp and there's literally no water in any direction i can look there's like no water like a couple little ponds i could get drinking water out of certainly nothing you could paddle in and it, it felt ridiculous because here i am with a canoe in the middle of nowhere and there's a, no water it seemed like it was basically on a hiking trip with a canoe which seemed crazy but it was also this like wonderfully absurd challenge it's like who does that like who decides they're going to portage for four days in the middle of a trip i mean that's not what I thought I was getting into. It turns out that's how long it took. But part of the magic was that, you know, partway through that, I started encountering a lot of caribou tracks, which turned into trails, which turns into tufts of fur on the willows and everything. And then <clears throat> one day I look up and there's like six or seven caribou standing there looking at me on this ridge. And so for the next two, two and a half days, I could almost always see caribou in one direction or another as I was hiking through here. And so it just became this like magical traverse with the caribou it was amazing it's incredible to think about number one the fact that you were carrying a canoe and all your gear for four days but then to be able to tie that into the the wildlife viewing opportunity 
that you were you were looking for. I mean, you were looking for the wolves as you made that traverse, but you find the caribou, you're going to find the wolves eventually, right? And and I did. There was, you know, I, I have these, you know, and the wonderful thing is that the wolves up there, I mean, they're they're just these ivory white wolves, right? And so, I mean, you can see them from a long way away. And so sometimes, you know, you're carrying the canoe and you just, you look up to get your bearings or even to check, you know, I was navigating by map and compass. So sometimes you look up to get your sight line and then boom, you see this on the horizon, this white dot and it's coming towards you. And uh, yeah, there's times I'd put the canoe down and grab the camera out and just have this, you know, a wolf or two coming towards me, coming towards the caribou, coming towards me inadvertently. And I thought, hey, that's a pretty good reason to take a break from a portage, you know, to put the gear down. So it, it probably wouldn't have taken me as long to finish the portage, but I had all these distractions along the way. Happy distractions. A quick summary. When you do a portage mm -hmm. and you have to do it three times, you did that whole distance three times. Yeah, exactly. You know, just when you think of the, just boil yeah. it down to the, the effort. We try to do it in one go. It's often two, but three, I mean, obviously you have the time and the commitment for the wilderness yeah. experience, but yeah. wow. I, you know, I think there's probably some times where things were starting to get heavy too. And I would just, I probably did some legs in four turns because I was just thought, there's no reason to punish myself here. So yeah, it was it was slow progress, but it was also just wonderfully absurd. <laughs> and and it was an, one of the advantages was that I didn't have anybody else with me to be really mad at me for picking the route. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have gained a lot of favors from most other travel companions. So I was really relieved to be on my own at that point. That's always fun. It really <laughs> tests friendships. I've been on both sides of that equation on trips. <laughs> right, right. With the water course, I want to get back to the wolves desperately in a second. Mm -hmm. But just, you haven't been on these rivers. And when you look at a map, you see the course of, and you map it out. Mm -hmm. Joke. Um, and you plan that. But if you haven't been on, did you know when and where you'd encounter whitewater? Or did you just have to carefully go along and, and with your experience canoeing, feel like this is coming up and, and get out and check situations or how did you manage that part of the trip? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, some, some rapids are marked on the map uh, and sometimes they're completely inaccurate. <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know when these maps were made or how they were made or, but it can change drastically depending on the water levels. I mean, I was on a trip up there uh, that previous eight week trip where we got there super early in the spring. And one of the bigger hazards on top of the rapids, but there was massive chunks, like Volkswagen chunk size of ice floating down the river. And so you had to look out for those as well. But so yeah, some of them are marked on the map. Sometimes they're accurate, sometimes they're not. So generally the sight lines are quite good and there's not too many surprises. These rivers, unlike some of the ones in other areas, like in the mountains in the Yukon, you can come around these corners and there can be like trees swept in the way causing real hazards and, you know, blind corners here, not so much you know, if you've if you've got some experience reading white water, um, you usually have enough warning to get to the uh, to paddle to shore and scout it out and and find a safe route through and or portage or line your boat down. So mostly with experience and the maps a little bit as well. But I, I'm not a big fan of relying on maps and trip reports. I think it's a lot better just to read the water for yourself and and see what's happening. Well, in the spring, especially, or even in June, that far north, if it has rained for three or four days, couldn't that have a dramatic effect on mm -hmm. some of the tighter courses in the river? Sure, sure, of course. Okay, back to the wolves. We go back to the wolves. <laughs> did did you observe any cool behavior? I mean, you've got caribou, you've got wolves. Anything happen on on that trip that st stuck with you? That yeah, you know, you know, one of the things. I mean, you know, you always want to see. Uh, 
these predator-prey interactions, right? And, and you always want to see like the wolf and the caribou standing off. And I, I remember coming on a corner in a river and boom, there's a caribou standing there looking at me. And I'm like, oh, okay. It looks like he was about to swim the river. And then something caught me eye. I looked back behind him. There's a wolf on shore back behind him. I'm like, oh, that's why that caribou was about to swim the river. I just stopped it. I came around the corner. This caribou was about to make a breakaway, get swim the river. And then I come around the corner. All of a sudden, this poor caribou is between a rock and a hard place of me and the wolf. So, you know, and the current's pushing me towards like, the current's fast. I can't paddle back upstream out of the way. So I gave it as wide a berth as I can. I go downstream. And then I tuck the boat in, I go and hide myself so I can watch to see what happens next. And what happened next was basically like a long, long, long standoff. But as I'm sitting there watching the, the uh, wolf and the caribou stare each other down, I look behind me and there's a grizzly bear walking along. <laughs> so that was like in between the wolf, the caribou and the grizzly. Um, and, and nothing actually happened. They all ended up going on their own way. But one of the things that was really, really interesting that I never expected was that you know, there's a huge number of geese up there, Canada geese and snow geese. And of course, at that time of year, they've, they've had their molt. They can't fly. And so there was numerous times, like I'd come around a corner and you'd see these geese, they'd run up from the river where they're floating around up onto shore. And then one day I see that and I'm like, oh yeah, there goes a bunch of geese. And then out of nowhere, boom, white wolf comes rushing out of the, out of the uh, hill somewhere and just nails a goose and then another wolf and another wolf. And they're just taking these geese down like, like nothing. You know, geese obviously don't have a chance. And then, of course, I feel bad for the geese because I'm like, well, I'm the ones who flushed them up there. And then I'm thinking, yay, wolves, you know. So it's, I kind of felt like I, was, I wasn't sure whose team I was on there. But it was interesting, too, because I was like, well, those wolves, they were there. I didn't see them. They must have just been hunkered down somewhere and I didn't see them. And then as soon as they had the opportunity, they grabbed it. And, and I've now seen like – on numerous occasions. I mean, I never thought of geese as an important prey item for wolves, but I think in the tundra, they probably are. I've seen wolves take geese up there at least on half a dozen occasions. So that was pretty interesting. And, and also I was surprised to watch like an Arctic fox and a goose in a standoff once, you know, and I would have thought that, uh, you know, the, the fox would be a pretty formidable predator for a goose, but man, it was a draw. You know, cause a goose a big Canada goose with its arms spread out like this and jabbing with its beak is pretty formidable. I mean, the Arctic fox aren't that big, right? And so it was an even match. And even as they ran, they were totally evenly matched. One was not gaining on the other. The goose was not getting away. And so, yeah, there's, there's lovely things like that you get to see, right? That uh, you just feel like you're stepping into the Discovery Channel pretty much. Only it's live. Wow. You know, and you guys. You guys have had all kinds of experiences like that. You know what it's like. It's just the, those are the special moments, right? They are. Now, one question that that brings up, though, it makes sense that they would prey on the geese during the molt. Has that been the case every time you've seen them, or has it been more of an ambush hunt on on other occasions? Yeah, it's, I've seen that. It's a good question. I, I've seen them from a distance ambushing geese i guess i was sitting on top of a hill once on the back river on a previous trip and i did see them ambush some geese that were along the edge of the water that was a single wolf we saw the wolf and it sort of came up a gully and then bam so i guess they do it both ways which makes sense you know opportunistically and then also active hunting they know what's going on i guess right it does i mean we have coyotes and and bobcats both that 
are frequently seen in Yellowstone preying on waterfowl. Is that right, eh? Oh yeah, I've read I've read about that about bobcats creeping in on the rivers and yeah, yeah, they get in and hide under the log jams, hide in the log jams, and when the when the waterfowl swims by, right? It's a it's a pretty easy ambush spot. That, that's I've, I've read I read an article about that recently. I mean, that's fascinating to me. The well, the tundra predators like the wolves must must prey a lot on the nests too. You think ground nesting birds like geese? How vulnerable would that be? I mean, it's a sheer numbers game. I would think. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, definitely, Arctic fox are, are, are uh, often will den close to uh, goose colonies and taking off a lot of eggs. But like you say, it's a numbers game. So, I think you know those fox dens have been there a long time. The goose colonies have been there a long time, and I guess they've sort of reached their equilibrium somehow. But um, I remember just thinking of wolves again. Like, there was a day I was, you know, just sitting in camp, making myself a cup of coffee, and I was. It was windy, and so I was kind of, you know, in a bit of a sheltered spot. And so I kind of stuck my head up a bit to look on what was going on around me. And, and in the distance, they weren't that close, but there was a good 100, 200 caribou walking by on the other side of the river, you know, in maybe three, four abreast, kind of flowing across this undulating landscape. And, you know, that just took my breath away. And I'm just sitting there standing with my coffee. I can't believe I'm drinking coffee and watching this at the same time. And then all of a sudden, in my peripheral vision, I'm like, what's that? And there's a wolf just trotting right by me. It doesn't even break stride. Eh? He just like tilts his head, looks at me, just keeps going, doesn't break stride. And this wolf just beelines it over there and then disappeared. I never saw it again, but he, he headed for the caribou and then everything disappeared. I never saw what happened, but it was pretty... Wolf and uh, caribou became one. I wish I could have spent more time. Like I, I actually found three active wolf dens on that solo trip. Um, kind of by... Yeah, just by chance, really. I guess kind of looking in the right spots and just being observant. But um, I, I was nervous about I, the one wolves, the one den, they were quite skitterish. Uh, probably because I, I walked right up onto the den inadvertently. I just, I was hiking up an esker and all of a sudden I'm like, wow, there's a lot of scatter in here. There's a lot of bones. And all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, I'm staying in a wolf den. And all of a sudden I see this wolf, you know, up in the hill looking nervous and howling. And I thought, okay, I, I, I am just a major intruder here. I don't want to force these wolves to relocate their pups or anything because den locations are tough to find up here. So I made myself scarce. Um, had I had a calmer, more gentle introduction to those animals, it might have been nice to like stay around there for a few days because that's one of the reasons why I planned to have uh, more time on these trips was to be able to do such a thing if I had the opportunity. But you know, I didn't want to be that selfish photographer trying to push the wolves for the sake of my own photos. So it, it just didn't feel comfortable. And, um, but still, I mean, what a thrill to find a, find these active wolf dens, you know? So you said you found three were any of the others, a better opportunity to spend some time. Well, one, there was a storm raging and I had to get out of there. And the other one was right at the end of the trip when I was windbound and I was trying to get to my, uh, pickup location. And I was windbound on the opposite side of the water from, from these wolves. But I couldn't see the den specifically, but it was there. And I, and I know it was there because I could, I could hear the pups and I could see the, the adults moving around. And it was, it was on the island in, in this delta. And um, what was great is that as I was windbound, I'd be like lying around in the tent reading or something. And I'd hear howling. I'd open the tent door and you could see the adults up in the hills on the other side, communicating with the den. And so you'd hear this howling. Sometimes you'd, I'd look out and see the adult, but then you'd hear like one of the, uh, 
whichever adult was babysitting the pups, you hear then it respond. And then you hear all the pups chime in, right? And it was just this wonderful thing. It was like for two or three days, I just sat there and just kept track of these wolves more by uh, ear than by sight. Like I'd see them. And the distance was a bit too tough for photography and there was no good way to get over there with the way the wind was. I mean, I couldn't, I was windbound for a reason. And, uh, but it was, it was just, it was great. It was great. And it was also nice to know, like, I, I'm sure I didn't disturb those ones at all. I was tucked away in the bushes. I'm sure they knew I was there, but our proximity was such that I feel like it was comfortable. But it was pretty neat. I, mean, I have this one picture that, you know, it's probably not publishable quality, but I literally opened my tent door one morning and there was a wolf sitting on his haunches and he started howling and the big mountains up behind it. And I have this picture of this beautiful ivory white wolf howling with the big Arctic mountains behind it. I took it at, right at my tent door. That's crazy. And, yeah, that was pretty great. That was right at the end of the trip. That was a nice, nice farewell. Yeah. But, but I will say that Bob Dennert, who's the guy who told me that he had seen more wolves on that river than any other river. I, I won't say that that was the case for me. I definitely saw wolves there, but um, definitely not more than they'd seen on the back river. Uh, but, uh, man, it, it sure felt good to scratch that itch though. Cause ever since he told me that story years earlier, I was like, Oh man, I got to go to that place. So it felt pretty good to scratch the itch. So in hindsight, the four day walkabout was worth it. Definitely worth it. <laughs> every, every step, every step was worth it. Yeah. Went on a seven-day canoe trip, and then I decided to take four days and just take my canoe for a walk. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> when you explore that far north, the wildlife aren't necessarily or probably not accustomed to pe people whatsoever. Right. So did you find that most animals displayed no fear, or did some run off? Like I, I've found with caribou, they're more curious as long as the person sits still. And once they discovered you, it yeah. wins your favor. But with the wolves even – I would expect they'd be fairly tolerant of people because just not deemed, we're not perceived as a threat. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So I definitely had wolves that like, like that one that tried to buy me in camp that day, you know, he just basically took a look at me, but kept going. Like he had other business. He wasn't concerned about me at all. So I definitely had, I would say most of my encounters were of that variety you just described. Like even with the, some of the tundra grizzly bears I saw, you know, they got big home ranges. They're, you know, a bit, more food stress, say, than the coastal bears I'm used to working with. You can imagine that they're, you know, and they're not used to being around other bears because their home ranges are so much bigger. Um, you know, one would expect that they would have less tolerance of people than the coastal bears. And generally, um, the bears that I saw were mostly quite accommodating. Uh, that said, I came around a corner one day and, you know, I was able to stop and take pictures of some of them at a reasonable proximity, you know, and giving them again a wider berth than I would a bear on the coast. But um, <clears throat> then again, I came around the, coast, the corner one day and looking, I, I thought I saw, I was getting close to the Arctic coast and I thought I saw a polar bear. It was a super sunny day and I, and I thought I saw a polar bear and I looked, I've got my binos and I looked and it was a grizzly bear, just like a super blonde one. And the way the light was hitting it, it looked really white. As soon as I came around the corner, it was feasting on blueberries. As soon as it saw me, this bear took off and it took off like uphill. And you know how a bear will often like bound away and stop and look back at you? There was no stopping. There was no looking back. This bear just took off and it, I mean, there's no way any of us could have run up that hill as fast as that bear did. Like it just, so I was, that was really interesting. Now that one was closer to the coast. Maybe it has more contact with people from uh, one of the Inuit communities there. Who knows, right? 
Um, but generally speaking, I would say, yeah, the wildlife was generally, yeah, pretty calm. I, I wish I had a mirrorless camera or like a quiet camera. I remember one day I was sitting there and like this caribou started walking towards me. And it was, it was so great. There was these like a small herd of caribou, I don't know, maybe 15 animals or something, walking along. And then there was an Arctic fox walking, trotting along with them as if it was like their pet. <laughs> it was so funny. And then this fox just sort of curled up and went to sleep. And these caribou, like two or three of them just kept walking towards me, towards me. I was just sitting there beside a rock and it. I wasn't sure if they're aware of me or not, but the thing that the thing that got them off was that I took a couple pictures and the, the camera set them off. I'm sure if I if I should should have just been shooting video or something. I don't think my camera had video in those days. But um, yeah, that I mean they didn't run away, but they just kind of took a wider berth. Otherwise, they were going to walk by within like touching distance. Yeah, that was a bit of a convoluted answer, Mark. But does that does that answer no, your question? Oh, it's a great story. Yeah. Mirrorless cameras are great for that potential in the oh yeah nowadays. So as you came, I mean that the last leg or the last river that you talked about, you took it. You said that you took that one all the way to the coast, and that was the the, the western west, river. Western, yeah, and it's a pretty obscure river. I mean, there's really very. I only know of three or four people who have paddled it. Only know one of those people personally. It's it's just kind of obscure. It's not a very long river. So if you're going to go that far, nobody really wants to go paddle a short little river like that. So unless you're doing an overland, there's a couple of different ways you can get to it overland. It, it doesn't really make sense for people to go there, which was part of the appeal. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a fun little junket to hit that one for sure. And how long did you spend on that last stretch? I probably gave myself a couple of weeks on there, something like that, which was certainly more than I needed. But uh, you know, I could probably could have paddled that in a week without any trouble. But you know, I, other things I wanted to do. Yeah, so, exactly. Well, yeah, those observations, I guess, mm. are a big part of that. Did you journal it so it's going to be easy to write your book that I'm trying to get you to do? <laughs> oh, this is great. So Mark and I were talking on the phone the other day, and he was like, you know, you really got to write a book about this. And it's something I'd I'd thought about a lot. With the business of life, I haven't got to. I mean, I've, I've written two or three articles about it, one of which I just pitched to a magazine recently. I'm hoping they're going to bite on it. But um, I do have copious journal notes and in, in um, <clears throat> to the point that, you know, one of the things is like, you know, when you're up there on your own, it's... I don't know if you guys had experiences like this, but like, you know, in solo travel, it becomes really clarifying, right? I, I feel like it, it definitely, um, I just feel like my ideas, my creativity kind of begins to flourish. So I had to start keeping my journal actually in the boat, in my map case, because I would have things I'd want to jot down throughout the day that I didn't want to wait until sort of I got in my tent at night. So yeah, I scribbled tons of notes all the time and had to like started running out of paper. So I had to like scrounge, started writing things on the back of my old maps and stuff like that. So yeah, I've written down a ton of stuff. And um, I think the other thing that's interesting that comes to mind is that I think nowadays a lot of people are doing a lot of journaling on their adventures through, um, you know, taking pictures and images solely with the idea of putting those on social media, right? And in some respects, it's awesome because those of us at home get to like share their adventure, right? We get to explore these places vicariously. And sometimes, man, I just love that. Um, when it's done well, when it's coming from that place of generosity and sharing as opposed to like self-aggrandizing. But the thing is like, you know, this was 2008, like I didn't even have a Facebook account. And so what that meant was that none of the stuff I was doing was through the filter of 
how I think it might look through social media. And, and that was also really nice. Like, I mean, I wasn't aware I was doing that. It just wasn't even an option. Like I didn't know that was a thing. It wasn't really a thing in that time. Right. But these days, I think as much as there's something really neat about people being able to do that, I think something can be lost too, because then you're part of your experience is thinking about what the social media experience is. And I think that can take away from your immersion in the landscape and the nature around you. But that's my concern. You know, people are out there doing that stuff can tell me otherwise. I don't, I don't know any different, but um, I didn't have any of that. And so for me, as I started paddling down this last river, like, you know, I, uh, I just felt, I just felt like, A, this sort of real sense of accomplishment that, that all this stuff had come together that I'd really been dreaming about for years. But B, just like pretty, um, I don't know, I don't want to say at peace. That kind of sounds uh, glib, but I, I guess that is how I felt, you know? And, and I think deep immersion in wilderness, uh, if you want to use that word, is um, kind of nice that way because, you know, my life at home, even at the time, I wasn't as busy then as I am now, but like my life is pretty frenetic. You're always like rushing around doing this or that and trying to be productive all the time. And one of the things I really took home for me up there is like, wow, there sure is a lot of value in idleness. And just letting a moment wash over you, sitting there with a cup of tea, staring out, in this case, at the river, or being at home, staring at the window and not being worried about whether or not you're crossing anything off your to-do list, but just being there and enjoying the place you're in. And man, you sure get a lot of time to do that when there by yourself. And that really uh, reminded me the value in that. And that's something I've taken home with me. And I, I still, 10 years later or more, I try to create space for myself to do that, you know? In just little ways. Sometimes it's just turning off the radio if I'm in the car. You know, have a little peace and quiet. I can imagine that that sense of place, that sense of peace that you're talking about was enhanced in the fact that, you know, as you start down that home stretch, you think back of all those months of preparation, months of planning, and then to already have seen a good portion of the trip come to fruition and then just be be able to just sit there and and as you said, let that moment wash over you and just and just relish in it as you start that final stretch. That's got to be a sense of satisfaction that most of us don't have the opportunity to experience. Yeah, it, it was really satisfying in a lot of ways because I, I think I got really lucky. Like the wildlife encounters I had were kind of what I was hoping for. You know, like I saw a lot of muskox, a lot of caribou, a lot of a lot of wolves, and. <clears throat> A lot of other things. I saw my one and only Wolverine, you know. So stop. <laughs> I was just going to say we kind of washed over <laughs> because that got mentioned in the last show, and we kind of we all of a sudden yeah. now we've washed over the Wolverine. But no, Tim, please, uh, the Wolverine chaptered. The Wolverine. Okay, well that was an interesting one because you know one of the things people always want to know when you go on these trips is like, well, did you see any other people? Because somehow um, it seems to heighten the experience for people if you didn't see anybody, and um, I, uh, yeah, I, I was thinking that on this trip, like and any trip I've ever been on, I've always seen somebody, I've always seen at least one person. And generally it's like, well, these are people I have an awful lot in common with. And generally it's usually quite nice. Um, but for some people that seems to disrupt their idea of what wilderness is. Um, but I was thinking on this trip, like I had been, if I was going to encounter somebody, it would be on the back river, the a trip coming down, but I didn't see anybody. So I thought that's it. So I'm sitting in my canoe one day, drinking a cup of coffee, taking a break. It's a beautiful day. I'm feeling good. I look downstream. 
boom, I see a Wolverine. And it's it's nosing along shore. And I can see through my binoculars, like it's it's on a mission. It's following the shoreline. And and I'm sitting, I don't know, 20, 30 feet off the shore. And I'm thinking, if this if this thing continues in its trajectory, it's gonna go right by me within 20 or 30 feet. And so I had to make that decision. Okay, do I grab the camera or do I just sit here and watch? And I thought, well, if I reach down and click open my pelican case, you know, that might be it. You know, I don't, and I don't want to miss seeing the only Wolverine I might ever see. I've never seen one at that point, you know, for the sake of what might not even be very good photographs. So I decided to not get the camera out, which maybe that speaks to my peace of mind at the time. So I'm watching with the binoculars. I'm, I'm watching this Wolverine. So cool. Doing the Wolverine thing with that loping gait, you know, foraging, sniffing, everything. And there's this weird sound enters my consciousness in the back of my mind. I'm like, what the hell is that? And all of a sudden, boom, a helicopter flies right over top of us. Us being me and the Wolverine. This helicopter, like literally we're in like in the middle of like a million square kilometers of wilderness or something. And this helicopter flies right overhead. Of course, scares the hell out of the Wolverine. It takes off. The wolf, or the helicopter pilot spots me. I'm in a red canoe in the middle of the river. And so it circles around and, and it lands. And there's this uh, helicopter pilot. She was from, I don't know, Vancouver or something. And she was up there flying some prospectors around. And so we had a very dull conversation that lasted for about two minutes. And she sort of shrugged her shoulders, looked really bored, and got back in her helicopter and flew away. And that was the end of my one and only Wolverine encounter. And man, I was mad. <laughs> I was so mad at that helicopter. <laughs> oh, geez, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was that was like a really lucky and I, I can't believe how lucky and unlucky I was at the exact same moments, right? Like how does that happen? How do those things intersect? It just makes no sense. Right? That would be a source of frustration in an otherwise ah. incredible adventure. But yeah, yeah, it makes for a good story though. I'll I'll give the pilot that. So that time of year the day length has to be super long. Oh, which yeah. is energizing but after a handful of days starts to become exhausting if you don't manage it i'm curious about how you handled that and at the same time people who have been in the far north through summer have to wonder where's the chapter on bugs oh yeah right yeah well yeah you're right you're right about these on, on all accounts like so the days are long which means that you know you got a lot of hours to explore and you got as many hours as you want which means that especially at the start of the trip and you're all revved up and excited you, know, you paddle all day you make camp and then you start you find some esker or something you start hiking it you get home you're going to bed at three in the morning you know there's still enough light out there to walk around and you know a few days of that you start to get pretty pretty tired and uh so you know eventually you find a rhythm but the challenge as a photographer is that, you know, the middle of the day lasts a long time. And so the light is pretty harsh. So if you want to, you know, get some nice light to work with, um, you got to stay up later. But the nice thing is once that light starts getting close to the horizon, it's there for a long time, right? That, that sun just hangs near the horizon. It's not gold. a golden hour up there. No, it's like a golden four or five hours, right? Oh, so it's it's amazing, but it, it's just not conducive to sleep because, you know, as a photographer, it's hard to turn your back on that, right? So the, the thing that helps you turn that, the back on that is the bugs <laughs> because the bugs are so ferocious. It's, it's um, I think I said in the last uh, time we talked about this that I came up with a new collective noun for uh, a group of black flies or mosquitoes, and that is an atrocity, an atrocity <laughs> of black flies. Because they really are, I mean, they, they, it's funny, we've made this trip just sound so great, but I mean, 
one of the biggest challenges is is the bugs. I mean, I basically wore a bug net every day, and um, that's something. On the water, not on the water. That's a good point. On the water, once you've paddled away from shore, and you know maybe half an hour, an hour of paddling, you generally lose the cloud of bugs that followed you out there. Good. And so then you just eat out there, and you don't go to shore to go to pee. You just pee out there or whatever, uh, because uh, interesting. You know, so you've got to modify so much because of the bugs. Well, as soon as you go back to shore, you know you're going to get mauled, right? And so you try to – once you get out in the water and you ditch that, you, you, it's not very motivating to go back to shore because uh, they – yeah, they really are bad. And like, you know, I do this thing we'd call evasive maneuvers. So you, you get your – you're going to dive into your tent, but you can't just walk over to your tent and open the door and walk in. You're taking like an army of – sorry, an atrocity of biting insects <laughs> with you. And so what we what I do, my friends and I, and what I adopted is that we we call it evasive maneuvers. So we we start running. We just run in these. We you know you go run 300 meters trying to ditch that cloud of bugs following you around. Then you have somebody inside the tent getting ready. You like, okay, I'm coming. And then unzip the door for you and you dive in and close the door. But inevitably, like you'd have so many bugs come in. And I started using my map case. I called it my my WMMD. This was sort of a from the news at the time, right? My my weapon of mass mosquito destruction. <laughs> that was during the whole Iraq war thing. So yeah, you you know you get in your tent and you gotta spend a whole lot of time killing all the bugs that are in there, and you're just a washing them. You find them in horrific places. You know your, your carcasses are in your belly button, they're behind your ears. That you got scabs behind your ears and across your forehead from the black flies. You're you know some my one eye was swelling shut from the bugs one day and. So you're just covered in itchy scabbiness a lot of the time. And so that, you know, that's a lot to deal with. You, in the morning, you wake up and your tent is just a wash and corpses of these insects you've killed. You know, they get in your food, they get in your face, but it's kind of the, uh, it's a little bit the mind over matter thing. You just kind of got to be as zen as you can with it and uh, just carry on and then hope you get lucky. Now on this trip, I got really lucky because halfway through the trip, I had a real cold snap. It went down to freezing at night and it killed them all <laughs> and they didn't come back. So for the last three weeks of my trip, I didn't really have any bugs to worry about. Wow. So what a that turn. was, well, that was the thing. And, and it just made that sort of blissful uh, experience of sort of like the final stretch that you were talking about, Ron, was just that much more so because, you know, I could eat lunch and then literally I'd have a nap in the canoe just in this nice warm sunshine without any bugs, something that'd be impossible to imagine like two weeks earlier. And there'd be times I'd wake up from a nap and I'd be like, how long was I sleeping? Like I had no idea. So I didn't have a watch on me. Like, you know, so yeah, there was some nice sort of moments like that. Nice. Uh, that were facilitated by the uh, cold snap that killed all the bugs. Yeah. That's cool. So no watch, just what you needed to do. Yeah, what your so, body needed for rest. Yeah, like I, I had, I brought two watches with me to keep track of what was going, like you know, just the day and everything. Because I also, you know, I had a float plane coming to pick me up on a particular day. But the problem was, I, I broke the glass on one of the, the watch I was wearing on like, I don't know how many days into the trip, and then I dove into the river one day, and then that broke the watch, and then uh, I think the other watch. Something went wrong with it too. So I, at a certain point, I completely lost track of what day it was. I had no idea. I was like, okay, it's either, it was like, it's either Wednesday. I was trying, like I actually wrote out a calendar. Okay, I flew in on this date 
And then I had this camp and this camp and this camp. And I was trying to backtrack to figure out what day it was, what the date was, so I could have a better idea of how many days I had left to meet my pickup. You know, presumably I had a satellite phone. I could call the pilot, but, you know, you never know if the batteries are going to work or if it's otherwise going to fail. And so at one point I was like, well, it's either Wednesday or it's Friday. I'm not really sure, so I'll go with Thursday. <laughs> and so then I just <laughs> went from there. I'm impressed. I lose track on a 10-day trip. That's one of the things I know I'm really in the in the in the right? frame of mind I desire to be in when I all of a sudden can't remember what day it is. I have totally. to focus and think about that. That's a totally, good sign. Totally. Yeah, no, I agree. And it wasn't like I was obsessed with knowing what day it was. I just wanted to have some sort of sense of semblance of uh, how much time I had left to work with, you know. Just for the listener's benefit, nighttime, the total darkness obviously changed a fair bit over the seven weeks but yep. at the beginning of the trip would we looking at two or three hours of darkness you know i i i can't say mark to be honest i would have okay. to look that up I, I don't know but definitely it changed a lot like by the end of the trip if i stayed up late i remember you know one night looking up and i was like oh wow that's a star like i can see a star up there you know towards the end of the trip like the days start to get short pretty fast towards you know as you get into august like towards the you know middle of august yeah I've already crossed off my question about northern lights. Oh, yeah, exactly. This came to common sense. It's like, wait, there's no nighttime. It's summer. Yeah, yeah. The five-hour sunset, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? How nice would that be? Oh, yeah. It's almost like, as a photographer, it's also it's also kind of tiring, right? Because you're like, you know, these sunsets go on and on. And you're trying to think of all these different compositions and what, what you might have missed and what else you could do. And, uh, I mean, it's a great problem to have. You know, there, there is something about that the rhythm of even a shorter trip, but I can only appreciate it over seven weeks, especially by yourself of just the one thing I'm lacking. One of the things this year without doing these as many wilderness trips, I really only had one is that it gets me through the rest of the year. It just, I come, I leave with all the to do's in my mind, yeah. I'm busy, busy, busy. I go on the trip and I just decompress and, and come back a much healthier human being perspective, calm, more philosophical, more appreciative. And that carries me through months of back in the normalcy of life. So mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate personally those, the opportunities to just immerse oneself in the wilderness and appreciate from the grandeur to the smallest aspects and experiences. So yeah, I'm just riveted with your story. Yeah, that, that, that really Pretty resonates sure. with me because it it's definitely as I came home from that trip, there was a sense of calm about me that I felt uh, that was not typical, like, you know, in my day-to-day -day life, you know, my day-to-day -day modern life at home. It's certainly not typical of my day-to-day -day life now. I mean, man, it, it is busy. It is super busy. And I try to tap back into those sorts of things you're talking about, like that that calmness that, that can become uh, just part of you after you sort of divorce yourself from all the gadgetry and blinking lights and noises of our life at home. And that's, um, that's powerful stuff. You know, that's a good, good, good thing to experience. I think it's really good for us and for sure. Cause we weren't, you know, we did not evolve in this kind of modern life and we're not well attuned for it really. You know, we're just coping. And, you know, one of the things I always notice when I come back from these trips, um, <clears throat> going back to like, even in my early twenties, when I went on my first sort of six week trip with a, a girlfriend at the time, and I remember getting back. It was my that was my first real immersion for a long period of time. And I remember coming back and hanging out with my university buddies. And I, I just couldn't believe how like 
busy they were and they're flicking between the radio stations trying to find something they want in the car and everything there was just like so many lights and so much noise and so much restless activity all the time and that was sort of the culture shock of returning to that life you know it really really struck me and and i think now i've done enough of this that i know to expect that when i come back i expect that it's going to be a bit jarring on re re-entry if you will i like but, that term um, yeah which one jarring re-entry yeah. Re-entry. Yeah. I mean, did you even talk? Did you find over the over the course of those seven weeks, did you just speak out loud less frequently, or did that continue as normal, or yeah, was it just I, I, more thought in your head? I mean, I'm just that's an interesting process. It is. And it's funny. My friend Jasper asked me that once, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I kind of remember telling jokes out loud." <laughs> <laughs> I, I do remember. Is that a yeah, good sign? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Getting Depends on who you were talking to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or if you heard laughter back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who was that? But yeah, there was definitely, um, I definitely still talked. Yeah, but I'm sure not that much. I mean, and this is the thing. It's like, you know, this ties into sort of the wildlife theme again too, but like, you know, paddling down the river by yourself, mostly not talking, sometimes singing, you know, I sang quite a lot when I was paddling. But most of the time, compared to like being out there with a group of people, a group of people is kind of imposing on the landscape, right? Like what, sound really travels over the water. So when you got a bunch of voices talking, like I'm sure there's a reason why I saw so much wildlife on the trip. And part of that reason is that I'm just quietly paddling canoe by myself, talking to nobody most of the time. And so you come around the corner and there's a wolf sleeping on a rock. It's like, oh, if I'd been with a group of people, he'd probably already be gone. He would have heard us coming, you know? So yeah, not, not too, I mean, there was chatter, but nothing like when you're with a bunch of people obviously yeah especially this year i mean we started off talking about the impact that the year has had economically fiscally in different areas but for a person like myself and like you guys have both just been talking about that's that reset that we have just being able to get away and escape that reset your whole psyche just find find a place to relax and uh, and live like we were meant to live, but when you don't have that, you know tensions are tensions are high all over the nation, all over all over the world right now because people haven't had that opportunity. They've been stuck inside, stuck you know isolated in the big city, but just just isolated and and just no opportunity to get out and get that reset. And I think it's important that we bring stories like this one to folks to remind us that, you know, there's going to come a time where we can get out again and we can have that reset, have that adventure and live like we were meant to live. You know, I I think you tapped into something really important there, Ron, because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's like, well, this, these things make sense to me. You think of our evolutionary history. We are, we are built to live out there, not in this busy modern life. But what's fascinating to me is, you know, I've done, I've done a lot of browsing of the literature that people who study like the impact of nature on people's well-being. And there's some very rigorous science out there that shows quite clearly that, you know, uh, exposure to nature or natural landscapes or even sometimes just fish in a tank or, or a view of one of Mark Raycroft's beautiful nature pictures can reduce people's blood cortisol, can reduce their, um, uh, you know, reduce their blood pressure and have these real physiological, measurable physiological responses people will have these in response to uh, exposure to nature in one way or another, right? And to me, that's really fascinating. Like there was a famous study that done that showed that people 
recovering from, I'm not sure if it was appendix or gallbladder surgery. This was like a 20 year study. And they found that there was the people recovering in the hospital room that had a view of a brick wall, their recovery time was like 30% longer than the people who are in the recovery room that had a view of like a pastoral scene with like green stuff growing. Right. So I think these aren't just things we imagine. This is real physiological stuff that we as human beings, as part of this planet, you know, we, we are uh, attuned to nature one way or another. And, and it, it definitely behooves us to tap into that when and if we can, because it's just plainly good for us. And that's not just something we imagine. That's something that science has showed strong evidence for. We're not meant for the four walls in front of the computer. And, and I mean, so many no. of us are forced to be there for extended periods. And yeah. there's, for me, anytime that stress feels heavy, a walk in the woods, or if, if I need to be creative, but I'm unable to due to other things pulling on my mind, a half hour, one hour walk in the woods with a notepad or mm -hmm. nowadays the, the notes on my iPhone, mm -hmm. I come up with so many ideas when we just huh. let ourselves become distracted away from the stress mm -hmm. and onto these natural forms. If I'm trying to come up with a, a, a title for an article or even just the points to flush out a piece of writing or even a new business proposal to forget about it and go for an hour walk when i'm back it's finished isn't that amazing yeah it, so yeah. i mean there's a lot to what you're saying yeah that, that, that's, that's amazing that's amazing and, and it, it's funny because it it takes something too to walk away from the machine right it feels like it's like oh i'm caving in i'm not doing the work but like you say you, you're getting the work done while you're out there walking but it's in an environment where your mind is maybe works in a different way taps into that creative side of you a bit better somehow or something create some space there that's really cool yeah. that you do that yeah. well not and not thinking about it i'm not yeah. going with okay right. by the time i'm back i better have this done it's like right, no right, right. i'm taking me a break i'm yeah. not doing it but i'm yeah. i'm prepared in case a thought comes to mind mm -hmm. when i go and i start looking at the trees and i notice a pileated woodpecker over there or an owl took off or a toad hop my mind's relaxed enough that these thoughts just filter in yeah. And then I get excited about it because I'm in a calmer frame of mind and it right. pieces together. And that's why I don't, I smiled very broadly when you were explaining on your trip, how you just ran out of things to write on right? Be because you're such a wonderfully creative space where you, your whole physiology, except maybe in bad weather or rapids or bugs is at a much calmer state yeah. and more creative. Yeah. I feel like it's like, um, it's just a more of a steady emotional rhythm, right? There's less sort of jumping, you know, things sort of jumping up and down with the uh, crazy amounts of stimulus that we have at home. It's more of a steady sort of, you know, it's not like there's a lack of stimulus out there, but it's more steady. It doesn't blink at you. It doesn't scream at you like our human environment does. And so I think when you take yourself out of that blinky human environment and, and step outside for, like you say, like it doesn't have to be, you don't have to go away for two months in the wilderness. You can go for a walk in the woods for, an hour, you know, even that can be really clarifying. And I think that can really tap back into, um, to sort of a more sort of, uh, what's the right word? Primal. I don't know. Part of our beings. What's, what's in like a, a stable line? What, what's the base, a baseline? Yeah. Baseline. Yeah, sort of meant to be. Yeah. I like rhythm yeah. too, but like yep. a baseline. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So knowing you were coming to the end, did you want to get to your pickup site a little bit early so you could kind of decompress and prepare yourself for that? 
or did you want to relish every moment that you can and kind of milk every last second out of the the opportunity to be out there? It, it's yeah, interesting. So what happened was I, I made camp in this place that was probably like a day or two paddle from the end of the river, and I stayed there for two or three days hiking around the mountains, you know, small sort of mountains. Um, and there was caribou that were coming through in waves every now and then. And I just sort of stayed there doing not very much for a number of days. And then at one point I was writing my journal. And I was like, you know, I think, uh, I think I'm ready to go home now. And so I packed up and just paddled down the, the river for the next couple of days and you know, eventually got myself, I had to paddle across the ocean for a day or two as well to get this Indian community. So I decided there, I was like, yeah, you know, I think I'm done. I feel absolutely ready to go home. I kind of, I want to go see my girlfriend. I kind of want to go see my dad. I want to eat French fries more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want a chocolate sundae, pizza. And, um, and so then I had, so that leaving was almost like another four days of after I realized, I'm like, yeah, no, the trip is done for me. I feel complete. And then it was like another four days to paddle out to get to where a plane might pick me up. And then I think another couple of days before the plane was able to come and get me. So, so that transition period kind of got built in, if you will. So at the conclusion of the trip, you're at the Inuit village. Yeah. Bathurst Inlet. Yep. At Bathurst Inlet. And, and you were there. How long were you there before being picked up and flown out? Yeah, I think I was there a couple of days. It's a couple of days. And did you just camp around. on the edge of the community, or did you yeah, go into camped. the community at all? I or how did... Yeah, I went into the community. I, I chatted with the people. They brought me in. They served me bannock, and and there was a jar of peanut butter, like a jumbo peanut butter jar. And they're like, "Oh, would you like some fried bannock?" Like our, the elder here just made it, and I was like, oh, "Are you kidding me? Would I like fried bannock?" Yeah. They're like, "You want some peanut butter?" And I didn't mean to, but when when I when I stuck the knife into the peanut butter, like a massive clump of peanut butter came off. And I thought, well, it would just be rude to put it back in the jar. So I just slathered it on. It was like an inch thick. And I just like, because oh. by this point, I mean, I was skinny and my metabolism was running like full throttle. Right. And so, you know, there's a, I did a lot of planning on my food, but it's hard to keep up with the caloric demand of just being moving all the time. Right. And, and you know, colder temperatures take the energy idea. So I was hungry. And so, man, I just downed that peanut butter and bannock bread and, and there it was, uh, yeah, that was great. So I spent a, a few days in the community, and I was supposed to go out berry picking with the people. They invited me to tag along, but then a storm rolled in, and the weather got nasty, so we, we didn't go, which was too bad. I was I was really honored to be invited to go out and pick berries with them, and I was really, really excited to spend more time with these people because they were so kind and generous and, and, and nice, and um, and uh, I, yeah, it was too bad I missed that opportunity because of the storm, but uh, yeah, I was there for a couple of days, and then a uh, float plane trip back to Yellowknife, and the land of things like ice cream and French fries. Yeah. How was I don't it think sitting... of that for yellow knife, but I could see it. <laughs> well, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. How was it sitting on the plane after, you know, two months of silence? It was interesting because I had the same pilot as who flew me out. So he was eager to hear about things. So we chatted a bit and I remember thinking how interesting it was to look back down from the bird's eye view plains I view, looking back down on some of this land I travel through and how vastly different it looks from up there. I think I was prepared for the sound of the plane. But you, what, what was interesting is that, you know, and being a float plane is cool because you're flying. It's an intimate thing, right? It's not like being a jet. You're flying low. You can see stuff. And 
I fell asleep. I think because I do remember, you know, we haven't really touched on this, but it's still a big wild place, and there was still like a gnawing sense. As much as I was comfortable, there was a gnawing sense of vulnerability that I took with me all the time, right? Like, you know, I'm breaking camp. I'm like double checking to make sure I didn't forget anything, you know, because you know if, if you lose a, you know, critical piece of equipment, like you're done. And so I remember thinking that you know what. I will be completely safe by the time I get back to Yellowknife, you know? And, and so I think knowing that there was some, something twigged in my mind, it's like, you know, I've been working, enjoying myself immensely, but also doing a lot of physical work and somehow flying back into Yellowknife, something released and I just fell asleep. And I, I can't believe that I did. I can't believe that I'm flying in float plane over this amazing landscape and I fell asleep. This is your story, so I want to say this really quickly. But oh, one of the things I enjoy most about being in the far north is just that our senses are, or my senses are far more alert. I know yes. there are grizzly bears around. You know, I enjoy seeing them, but it's just that awareness requires that much more focus. I feel that much more alive day in and day out Definitely. in that frame of mind, but it is taxing in a different way than we're used to. Mm-hmm. And, and all those elements that you're outlining, especially the idea of not just, you know, being aware of what's around you, but leaving gear, all, all of these critical decisions and just being aware and, and focused is, is tiring. And over that period of time, that makes sense when you no longer had to. Yeah, know, somebody else. Every day is live or die is always yeah. that possibility. Totally. And, and, you know, I've been mitigating my risk every day for every little, little things, right? Like making sure when I'm cooking at the stove, the little cook stove that I don't reach across it. I don't want to, I can't afford to get a burn on my arm, right? Just little things like that or scouting the rapids and planning these things. All of a sudden the pilot is completely in control. There's nothing I can do. And, and maybe that's part of what it was, right? I think so. It's logical. Yeah. 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 Just relax huh. for the first time in seven or eight weeks. Yeah. I mean, well, I won't, I won't say no, relax, relax in a different way, relax, but, but in a different Not way. responsible. That's right. Yeah. There was something different, you know? Yeah. yeah. And also no, it's like there's... a very satisfied sleep too. Right. Sure. Yeah. A lot of, it's a very multiple levels of kind of relief. One, just like, okay, I, I, I did this thing I set out to do. Wow. I can't, that's amazing. I've thought about this for years. And also just the relief of knowing that, yeah, nothing can go wrong from here. You know, cause a lot of people, you know, some people in my family that really weren't, you know, my, my grandmother was like quite concerned, right? So it was really nice to know that within a few hours I could give her a call and be like, hey, <laughs> I'm okay, you know? Well, it's it's been a pleasure and I thank you for taking us on this trip. I hope to see it in print someday, but at the same time, just to take our minds off the day in, day out routines that we're all stuck in right now and to hear about such a grand voyage that you did and, and the experiences you had and yeah thank you oh my pleasure guys Th- thanks uh yeah thanks for having me it's a real real pleasure to chat with you guys always and i just wish we could do it more easily more often and mark hold and on mark, hold on we're, we're, we've we're got another one here. coming well that's true we do should we tell people <laughs> sure we're gonna do something different on a future podcast for the first time in the history of wild and exposed no right we'll have a no <laughs> no <laughs> cliffhanger all right, it's coming. All right, well, yeah. it's coming in the weeks ahead. So, Tim, yeah, 
if, if we could share a little bit of, of what you're up to. So people, as far as your renowned guiding and what you do in the Great Bear Rainforest, I mean, worldwide people come to share your trips with you with spirit bears. And now there's another species also. Mm -hmm. What have you got going and where can people find more information about that? Yeah, so my website is still just my name, timirvin.com, I-R-V-I-N.com. And yeah, I run a bunch of uh, spirit bear photography trips out in British Columbia with uh, Marvin Robinson of the Gitgat First Nation. And we're also doing some coastal wolf trips now for the last three years. Well, this would have been four if it wasn't for COVID. So yeah, we, we do all these exciting trips out there. And uh, I mean, that's where I really cut my teeth as a guide is in the Great Bear Rainforest and I go back there every year. This is the, probably the first time in almost 20 years I didn't go. And man, I sure missed that. So you can find out more about that there if that's of interest for you at the website. I'm on Instagram at timothy.irvin is my handle. I don't post very regularly, but I'm in there. When so, you do, yeah. when you do, it's, it's amazing stuff. Well, I try. It's hard to keep up with you guys. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> I know about that. I do. I do. I look at your images. I'm like, oh, man, these guys are good. The atmosphere with those spirit bears and what you've experienced out there, I, I can see why it, it means so much to you. That's yeah, a little piece of magic out there on the coast. It, it really is. It's a, it's a pretty pretty amazing area. And I, I remember the, the first year I, I moved there, I worked as a guide, and then I got offered a job on the East Coast. And I almost went, but I thought, you know what? I can't leave this place. It's too special. So I've stayed ever since. Yeah. Well, we'll have all those links on our show notes as well at wildandexposed.com. So you can find it easily there. And it's been a treat. Stay tuned, people, for a different kind of podcast for an episode in a few weeks. <laughs> that we're not going to say anything more about. <laughs> no, no, I'm stopping there. You can find more of our work on Instagram, on Facebook, at wildandexposed.com. Our audio podcasts come out every Tuesday, and our video versions of those come out on our YouTube channel on Friday. Please subscribe and follow along. Give us a positive review. Send us questions. Interact. We appreciate all of it. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in time.